I wanted to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 12. And uh, we are going to be looking at verses 1 and 2 this morning in what is one of the most familiar and one of the most um, powerful passages in all of the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, Paul says, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we're so grateful that you've given us a trustworthy standard of what we should believe and how we should live our lives. And it is through your word that your spirit uh, illuminates our minds and renews our minds and grants us discernment, Lord, to be able to tell the difference between truth and error and uh, falsehood and uh, what is true and biblical and right and good and acceptable and pleasing to you. And so, Lord, even now as we spend time uh, in your word, that that our minds would be renewed for the next uh, 40 or 45 minutes, however long we go, that this would be a mind renewal uh, opportunity for each of us to think more biblically so that we can live more biblically and live in a manner that's more pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm sure you've heard of the famous English missionary, C.T. Studd, who faithfully served the Lord in China and India and Africa. He served back in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and By the age of 18, he had become one of England's most outstanding cricket players. And interesting part of his testimony, a visiting minister who was staying in Stud's home caught him on his way out the door one day to play cricket and led him to Christ. And yet, by his own admission, after getting saved, he lived close to six years in what he described as an unhappy backslidden state until at the age of 25, he heard D.L. Moody speak, and he committed his life to telling others about Christ. Not long after that, he decided to join Hudson Taylor in reaching people for Christ in China, and it was there that he turned 25, which, uh, according to his father's will, was when he was to inherit a portion of the family fortune. And through much prayer and the study of God's word, he decided to give away his entire inheritance. He spent several years serving in India, And then despite his poor health and against doctor's orders, he left his family in England to go to Africa where he eventually died. His now famous motto was this, quote, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Great statement, but he hadn't always lived by that motto. In fact, listen to what else he said earlier than that. He says, I had known about Jesus dying for me, but I had never understood that if he died for me, then I didn't belong to myself. What a great realization. Redemption means buying back so that if I belong to him, either I had to be a thief and keep what wasn't mine, or else I had to give up everything to God. When I came to see that Jesus Christ had died for me, It didn't seem hard to give up all for him. That's essentially what this passage is all about, giving up all to God. This is one of the the clearest, boldest calls to commitment and consecration found anywhere in the entire Bible. It's an urgent plea in light of God's glorious gospel that we've been learning about, to sacrifice everything, to surrender everything, to dedicate everything to God, and this earnest appeal to give up everything for the sake of the gospel doesn't just apply to missionaries like C.T. Studd or pastors. It applies to every Christian. God wants all of us to commit our entire lives to him, or as Paul says, he wants us to be living sacrifices. And in this text, we learn 
why we're to be a living sacrifice and how we are to be a living sacrifice. And the way I've outlined this text for us this morning is, is to simply point out to you four phases involved in becoming a living sacrifice who is completely and continually consecrated to God out of gratitude for the gospel. Let me say that again. Four phases, we're going to see four phases involved in becoming a living sacrifice who is completely and continually consecrated to God out of gratitude for the gospel. And, and the word phases indicates there's some kind of progression here. And, and I do think there is a, a progression here in what Paul is saying in verses one and two. First of all, we need to give God our soul. Secondly, we need to give God our body. Thirdly, we need to give God our mind. And fourthly, we need to give God our will. So let's look at these four phases together. First of all, we need to give God our soul. Notice that first word, therefore. And this is, uh, again, an important transitional word. This is the fourth therefore uh, that Paul used in this letter. There's one between chapters 2 and 3 where he says, Therefore, uh, you have no excuse. In other words, we're all under condemnation based on what he said in chapter 1. Uh, and then there's a, a second therefore in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He had just got done explaining justification is by faith alone. And so because of that, we have peace with God. We are reconciled to God. And then there's a third therefore in chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And again, he's talking about uh, how we have been delivered uh, from slavery to sin, and uh, he's about to talk about uh, how we can mortify sin by the power of the Spirit, so that's a very important transition. But this, therefore, in chapter 12, verse 1, is the most important, therefore, in this letter because it marks the transition between the two main sections of this letter that Paul wrote to the churches in Rome. Uh, if you've been tracking with us uh, through our study, you know that we've broken down uh, this book or this book breaks down into two parts. Chapters 1 through 11 are the gospel explained and now chapters 12 through 16 are the gospel applied. And if you're familiar with Paul's writings, uh, you know that he typically began with doctrinal instruction in the first part of a letter and then he followed it up in the last part of a letter with the practical implications. It's what's called the indicative imperative motif or mode uh, or style of writing where you start off with declarations of facts which lead to and result in duties to fulfill. And so there's a critical connection that we need to be reminded of here between what we believe and how we behave. Between what we have been learning in the book of Romans and how we should be living. What is this connection? Well, you can't know all these truths about God and what he's done for us in Christ without doing something about it. Doctrine demands duty. But at the same time, we can't do anything with these truths without knowing these truths. In other words, duty depends on doctrine. And so we'd always need to be careful to maintain this biblical balance between what we need to do, because there's a lot about what we need to do in the scriptures, but we need to keep that balance with what, with what Jesus has already done, so that all we do for Christ will be done in response to and in reliance on what Christ has done for us, amen? So it's a good reminder for us. So essentially what Paul was saying here is, hey, this is, this is who you were this is what God has done for you, and this is now how you should live as a result. That, that's essentially the transition that's going on here in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In other words, the good news of the gospel is more than just some facts to believe. It's also a life to be lived. And the gospel powerfully transforms the lives of those who embrace it. And so the rest of Romans is all about how the gospel is to be lived out by those who have embraced it. And so Paul essentially described what a, a transformed life looks like. 
particularly in relationship to other believers, to our enemies, to the government, to the society in general, and to weaker brothers. You're probably familiar with chapters 4, 14, and 15, the, area of, the gray areas of, of life. But, but notice what he says. He goes, therefore, I urge you, brethren. So he's referring to them as believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. They're part of God's family. Their sins have been forgiven. They've been reconciled to God through faith in Christ. And that word urge there is related to the word that Jesus used to describe the Holy Spirit as the one who would come alongside to encourage and exhort us. The word is also used in classic Greek, uh, classical Greek uh, of of. Uh, uh, of uh, a general exhorting troops who were about to go into battle. And so the idea here, and I think this is a, a beautiful picture that Paul is, is coming alongside his readers here in order to encourage and exhort us to live a certain way as a result of the gospel. He, he's not authoritatively demanding or commanding that we do something, but rather he was urgently pleading with us or, or earnestly appealing to us to do something. And notice the basis of his appeal. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, based on or in light of the mercy or compassion that God has displayed to you us in Christ, I appeal to you. And in chapters 1 through 11, Paul gave the, the, the clearest most systematic presentation of God's plan of salvation anywhere in the scriptures or even in any writing, for that matter. And in all of that he has written could be summarized by this one simple phrase. The mercies of God. That's pretty much everything he said in chapters 1 through 11. That rather than giving us what we deserve, God provided a way for us to be saved from his wrath against our ungodliness and unrighteousness through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's mercy. In fact, just prior to this verse, you probably remember Paul mentioned God's mercy 10 times. So this concept of mercy was fresh on Paul's mind here in chapter uh, 9, 10, and 11. If you remember back in chapter 9, verse 15 for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And then in verse 18, so then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Verse 23 and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. And then more recently in chapter 11, we just saw this as we wrapped up uh, this, uh, this section here in chapter 11, verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, and because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he may show mercy to all. And if you remember verses 33 through 36, Paul just kind of went off on this doxology. He burst forth in praise to God. But this whole concept of mercy was still in his mind because he comes right back to it in chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. His point is that, listen, whether you're a Jew, whether you're a Gentile, we all have one thing in common. We're all trapped in sin. We're all headed to hell. And God mercifully intervened by sending his son Jesus to die in our place and endure God's wrath against our sins so we could be forgiven. We could be rescued from death and hell and spend eternity in heaven if we respond in repentance and faith. So this would be an appropriate time to make sure that you have gotten all that, chapters 1 through 11, because we're about to move on. So my question is, do you realize, do you realize that you're a sinner under the wrath of God who deserves to die and go to hell? 
Do you understand that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross to pay the punishment for your sinful rebellion against him? Do you understand that? And do you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and exalted him as the Lord over all things? And have you confessed Jesus as the Lord of your life? Have you called on him to save you and to forgive your sin? That's all implied here in this phrase, therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. This is what it means to give God your soul. One commentator said it this way, quote, no other offering is acceptable to God unless we have first offered him our souls. Until a man's soul belongs to God, nothing else matters or has any spiritual significance before anything else worthwhile and acceptable can be given to God, the self must be given to him in saving faith toward Jesus Christ for regeneration. Again, salvation is, I think, implied there in that first phrase. But just notice before we move on here how Paul sought to motivate his readers not out of fear of judgment or loss of reward, but out of love and gratitude to God. And that was, that was Paul's motivation for life and, and ministry. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, for the love of Christ controls us. Not my love of Christ, but Christ's love for me is what he was saying. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. So simply, if you are still living for yourself, then you obviously don't understand the greatness of Christ's love for you. You don't understand the greatness of the mercies of God. Because if you did, you would come to the same conclusion Isaac Watts did in that classic hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, we're going to be singing that shortly, love so amazing, so divine, what? Demands my, my soul, my life, my all. So I ask you this morning, have you given God your soul? Have you given God your soul? That's where it all starts. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. Read in everything we've learned so far from chapters 1 through 11 into that statement. Once we've given God our soul, we also need to give God our body. We need to give God our body. Verse 2, or no, excuse me, uh, the second phrase there. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercy of God, now moving away from implication to specific application, this is very direct. I urge you to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Paul was referring to a once and for all presentation of yourself. The idea is to place yourself entirely at the disposal of God. That, Lord, I'm not here for me anymore, I'm here for you and you alone. I exist for your honor, for your glory. We're familiar with that word present, present your bodies a living holy sacrifice because Paul has already used it uh, earlier in this letter. Look back at chapter six. You'll remember this section, I'm sure. Chapter six, verse 13. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to summon as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? And again in verse 19, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Paul's point there and 
here now in Romans chapter 12, is that before we were saved, we used our bodies to serve sin. But now we must use them to serve Christ and bring glory to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know, verse 19, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, that you are not your own? If you're saved and the Spirit of God dwells within you, then guess what? Your body doesn't belong to you anymore. It was bought by the Lord. It says, for you have been bought with a price, the price of Christ's blood. Therefore, glorify God in your body. That was the conclusion that C.T. Sud came to. Is, hey, you know what? If, I, if I'm not serving the Lord with my body, then I'm a thief. I'm, I'm, I'm using my body for myself. I'm taking something that doesn't belong to me anymore. Now again, back in chapter 12, verse 1, that word present, present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, this was uh, a technical word used to describe offering up a sacrifice. I think Paul was intending specifically, intentionally, uh, to conjure up images of the Old Testament sacrificial system. When we read this, when somebody read this, they were to think back to the Old Testament and when a person in the Old Testament wanted to worship God and express their devotion to God, they would bring an animal and sacrifice it on an altar to please the Lord. Well, when Christ came and died on the cross, he became that final sacrifice and made the Old Testament sacrificial system obsolete. In other words, we don't have to kill animals anymore to atone for our sin. He already did it once for all through his death on the cross. And so what do we do now as New Testament believers when we want to express our devotion to God, when we want to express our gratitude to God, how do we do that? Well, we express our devotion to God, our gratitude to God by bringing, you ready for this, ourselves and sacrificing ourselves on the altar. In other words, we are the sacrifice. And we worship him and express our devotion and our gratitude to him by living lives that are holy and pleasing to him. And notice he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice as opposed to a dead animal. Someone said it well that the problem with being a living sacrifice is that we keep trying to crawl off the altar. I don't know if you find that to be true in your life. It's true in my life. But notice it's not just a living sacrifice, but a holy sacrifice, a, a sacrifice that is pure, that is blameless. In other words, there's no blemishes. That it's, it, it's, it's, there's no seconds. And you remember back in Malachi in particular that God rebuked the nation of Israel for bringing the the, the, uh, the kind of seconds to God, uh, you know, keeping the, the best sheep for themselves, they could enjoy that or they could make the maximum amount of money off of them, but, and they would just bring kind of the seconds, the ones with all the blemishes and, and uh, bring those to the Lord. We'll just, we'll just sacrifice those. He's like, hey, time out, what are you doing? I, I don't want your leftovers. I want a pure and blameless offering. And so I think too often we give God the leftovers of our lives, don't we? Our leftover time, our leftover money, our leftover energy. And he desires us to be a living and holy sacrifice that's acceptable to God, that is, that is pleasing to the Lord. Which he says is your spiritual service of worship. Some of your translations might say, which is your reasonable service of worship. The Greek word there is actually logikos, which where we get the English word what? Logical or reasonable. And so that's a good translation. And in other words, when you consider the undeserved mercy that God has shown to you, the only rational, logical conclusion is to give yourself completely to him. It totally makes sense to offer him our body for his service. But Lord, take my eyes. You, you bought me. You redeemed me by the blood of Christ. Take my eyes. Take my mouth. Take my ears. Take my feet. Take my hands. 
Take, take it all and use me however you want to use me to bring yourself honor and glory. This is how we worship God. And so spiritually speaking, giving our bodies to live for him and to serve him, it's, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. It's, it's, it's only, it only makes sense. I think our attitude should be that of the Christian martyr Theodore of Heraclea, who died around AD 306. And this is what he said in the face of his persecutors. He said, quote, I know not your gods. Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, is my God. Beat, tear, or burn me. And if my words offend you, cut out my tongue. Every part of my body is ready when God calls for it as a sacrifice. So I ask you today, have you given God your body? Have you given him your soul? Have you given him your body? There's a third phase here, and that is we also need to give God our minds. We need to give God our minds. Verse 2 And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now again, this is a very familiar verse. I'm I'm sure a number of you have this verse memorized. You're familiar with this this idea of um, not being conformed to something and, and being transformed into something else. But what does he mean here? He says, do not be conformed to this world. He's talking about the evil world system that, that is trying to uh, uh, undermine everything that God does. And we know that the evil world is, uh, system is under the rule of Satan. Satan is the God of this world. That's what the scripture teaches us. He's seeking to control people and to conform them to the world's way of thinking, the world's way of talking, the world's way of acting. And so what Paul is saying here is Hey, listen, the world is trying to squeeze you into its mold. It's trying to get you to look like everyone else and talk like everyone else and act like everyone else and talk like everyone else and think like everyone else. But don't allow yourself to get sucked into the culture and the customs of this world, the the world's entertainment, the world's vocabulary, the world's music, the world's values, the world's fashions, the world's opinions, the world's philosophies, the world's goals. I find it interesting that the only other place that this word conformed is used in the New Testament is 1 Peter 1.14. And you're probably familiar with this text as well. 1 Peter 1.14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. So to be holy is to be what? Set apart to be different. And so we should be different from the world. We should be set apart from the world. We shouldn't look like the world. We shouldn't think like the world thinks. We shouldn't talk like the world talks. We shouldn't act like the world acts. And sadly, I think there's too many Christians who are like chameleons, who simply blend in with their surroundings. They blend into their environment. And you, you put them in a, a situation at a home and they just kind of blend in there. You put them in a situation at church, they kind of blend in there and they go to, they go to work and they blend in there, go to school and blend in there. And, and they're just kind of conforming to whoever they're around. And so when they're around you know, a bunch of Christians, they kind of just conform to that and they kind of blend into that crowd. And then when they go off to work and they blend in, you know, they're all surrounded by all, a bunch of unbelievers and, and they're talking about all sorts of ungodly things and they just kind of blend right into that as well. They're, they're just always changing colors. And you're like, well, who are you really? See, Christians should be nonconformists. We shouldn't fit into the world in which we live. We are, the Bible says, aliens and strangers. In fact, people should probably, as they get to know us, begin to wonder, what planet is this guy from? What planet is she from? She's weird. He's different. 
He doesn't think like I think. He doesn't talk like I talk. He doesn't act the way I act. He doesn't talk about his wife the way I talk about my wife. He doesn't talk about, you know, whatever. He's just different. So Paul says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that Greek word for transformed is a word from which we derive our English word metamorphosis, which we all know means to change, and we, we probably think of a butterfly, right? A, a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and experiences this metamorphosis, and a, and a beautiful butterfly comes out. It's a great picture of the Christian life, right? That we're just a bunch of sinful caterpillars crawling around, and God redeems us, and next thing you know, he turns us into butterflies. This word transformed is, was, was used in the Gospels to describe the transfiguration of Christ. Back in Matthew uh, 17, Matthew 17, uh, verse 2, you remember this uh, occasion? It says that uh, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured or metamorphosized, if you will, that word before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. Mark 9, 2 says the same thing. This word, transformed, is also used to describe the sanctification process, by which we're transformed into the image of Christ. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, but we all, with unveiled Face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. And so Paul was referring to how the Holy Spirit transforms believers by making them less and less like the world and more and more like who? Like Jesus. And Paul was all about that in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, the ultimate goal of our salvation is not just to keep us out of hell, but to make us like Jesus. And the key to that sanctification process, where we become less and less like the world and more and more like Christ, is renewing of our Minds. Notice that phrase there, very, very important. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How does that happen? How are we transformed? By the renewing of your mind or your heart. And the word mind, heart are used inter- interchangeably in Scripture. It's, it's what, what I've come to refer to as mission, the mission control center of our lives, our heart, our mind. They're synonymous in the Scriptures. And so why do I call it the Mission Control Center? Is because our mind, our heart, controls our thoughts, our words, our attitudes, our actions, our desires. And so changing into the likeness of Christ begins with changing the way we think, which ultimately changes the way we live. Right thinking leads to right living. And we see this a couple of times in in Paul's other letters, Ephesians chapter 4, when he's talking about the sanctification process. He uses this idea of renewal. Ephesians 4.22, he says, in reference to your former manner of life, that you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of the deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. And then again, he mentions this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 10, have, having put on the new self, which is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal, which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, freeman, but Christ is all and in all. So, throughout Paul's letters, he talks about this this important concept of, of renewal, and particularly mind renewal, renewing of the mind. But nowhere does he specifically say how to renew our minds. At least in the passages that he mentions this 
idea of having our minds renewed. But we know from other places in Scripture that mind renewal is the combined work of God's Word and God's Spirit. And so this is, this is important. We don't want to overthink this and go, oh, is renewing our minds thing, you know, mean? This kind of sounds out there and it's kind of just ethereal and you know, not really practical. Well, it is really practical. It's, it's exposing yourself to the Word of God. It's submitting your mind to the Spirit of God who is responsible for the renewal process, ultimately the sanctification process, and let him use his tool, which is the sword, the, the sword of the Spirit is what? Ephesians 6 is the Word of God. So if it's the Spirit who's in charge or responsible or is the power source behind sanctification and mind renewal, he's going to use his primary weapon, his primary tool is the Word of God, and so he washes our minds with the water of the Word, Ephesians 5.26, so we eventually learn to think like God thinks, and we have what Paul calls the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. So we see things and we think about things and we process things like God does. In other words, we, we learn to think biblically. In fact, years ago I had a book that, that was the title, Think Biblically, and I actually had a little prop, I had propped it up on my desk on a little stand so when people came in to my office for counseling, they would be staring at this book the entire time and it just simply said big bold letters, think biblically. And it was a not so subtle message of what the real issue was here. That at the end of the day, the root issue likely in your life is you're not thinking biblically. And that's why you're not living biblically. And so we need to learn to think biblically. We need to learn to take every thought captive that is contrary to what God's word says and make it submit to and obey Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. Further, furthermore, we need to make sure that our minds are dwelling on the right kinds of things. We need to control what our mind thinks about, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. These are just some of the ways, practical ways, that we can renew our minds on a daily basis, just Spend time in God's word and ask, ask the spirit of God to use his word to, to flush out all the wrong thinking and, and to fill you up with all the right thinking. To think like God thinks, to think biblically. And so I ask you, have you given God your mind? He wants your soul, he wants your body, he wants your mind. But that's not all, there's one more thing he wants, he wants your will. And we need to give God our will. Notice, again, the phases here. So that, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. That word prove there means to approve something by testing. And so as our lives are transformed by the renewing of our minds, the Spirit of God enables us to clearly discern God's will as it is revealed in God's Word. In other words, we understand and know more and more of what He wants us to do or, or not do. Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10 he says that we are to try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. We're all in that process. We're all in that learning process. We're, we're trying to learn how to be more pleasing to the Lord. And then a few verses later, in verse 15, he says, therefore, or excuse me, verse 17, so then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So as our mind is renewed, we not only have the ability to discern the will of God, but we also have the desire to do the will of God. In other words, rather than just, just, just wanting to do what we want to do, 
we start to want to do what God wants us to do. How cool is that? And we ultimately find ourselves delighting in God's will. And when we do it, we find it to be good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, when we give up our our own plans and our own dreams and our own desires and pursue God's will for our lives, whatever that might be, we find that his will for our lives is way better than our own will and that it leads to true fulfillment and true satisfaction in life. That's been your experience, has it? You were off kind of doing your own thing. As an unbeliever and even sometimes as a believer, you're off doing your own thing. Thinking this is where, where you, how, what's going to make you happy. Doing what you want to do. And then you realize, you know what? Hey, I'm not even acknowledging the fact that this is not about me. This is about God. God put me here for a reason to live for his glory. Hey, God, what are you, am I doing what you want me to be doing or do you want me to be doing something else? And then you yield your life to his will and you start doing what he wants you to do rather than what you want to do. And you're like, hey, this is way, this is way more fun. This is way better than what I was doing. I was thinking I was really satisfied. I was really fulfilled by doing these things. But boy, doing this, I'm way more fulfilled. I'm way more satisfied. I'm way happier honoring the Lord and pleasing the Lord with my life. And so when we submit our will to God's will, he reveals to us what he wants us to do more and more, and we prove to ourselves and everyone else who knows us that God's way is the best way. I'm always struck by the the shocking martyrdom of John and Betty Stam, they were missionaries to China in the early 1900s, and they were arrested by communist soldiers and held captive in a really cold, nasty jail cell along with their three-month-old daughter. Her name was Priscilla. And on the day of their execution, they were forced to leave their precious daughter behind in the cell, not knowing what would become of her. And Betty had hidden two $5 bills under Priscilla's blanket, and it was just enough to cover the cost of the soon-to-be orphan's journey over the mountains to reach Betty's parents, who were also missionaries in China at the time. And so leaving their daughter in God's hands, the Stams faced their executioners with courage. They were dragged to the spot of execution. They were brutally beheaded but it's what they had signed up for because when Betty was just 18 years old, think about that, some of you students, see if you're even close to where this young woman was at 18. She expressed her commitment to Christ in this poem. Lord, I give you all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept Thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with thy Holy Spirit. Use me as thou wilt. Send me where thou wilt. And work out thy whole will in my life at any cost, now and forever. Little did she know at the time what that would cost her. but she was ready. She was willing. So I ask you, have you given God your will? Have you given God your will? Paul's gonna talk about a lot of practical things here in the next four chapters. But he started with the most important duty or application of all it's right here in these two verses the primary application the main application of the gospel in our lives is to live a life that is completely consecrated to God this is fundamental this is 
foundational to the Christian life. I love the example of the Macedonian Christians. Remember when Paul was running around raising, collecting an offering for the poor saints in, in Jerusalem and he reported about these poor believers, these impoverished believers in, in Macedonia. And he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 5, they first gave themselves to the Lord. Before they gave an offering, they gave themselves to the Lord. That's why I love whenever I visit a church that passes an offering plate and the pastor says, hey, just want you to know if you're visiting with us today um, for the first time uh, or if you're not a believer here today, these offering plates are not for you. Um, God doesn't want your money. He wants your soul. And that's true. He doesn't want our money. He doesn't want our donations. He doesn't want our volunteer efforts. He doesn't even want our Sunday morning church attendance. He wants all of us, our soul, our body, our mind, and our will. Is there any part of you that you're holding back from him? I remember when I was uh, in high school, hanging out with my buddies, the guys in the locker room, getting ready for PE or getting ready for soccer practice or baseball practice or basketball practice, whatever the sport was, whatever season we were in. And they're always talking about stuff, talking smack about this, doing this. But it was always interesting to me around this time of year during Lent. You probably all know this last Wednesday was Ash Wednesday, right? Which, which uh, in the Catholic Church and other Christian denominations, they start the time of preparation for Good Friday and, and resurrection, right? And so a lot of my buddies were Catholics and they, were, they would go to Mass every Saturday and Sunday and, or Sunday and, and uh, it's interesting because I saw how they lived their lives during the week and I heard how they talked in the locker room and what they were planning on doing that night or that weekend or what they did that weekend coming back on Monday and uh, there was no secrets in the locker room, Right? And so I remember during Lent, hearing the conversations turn to, hey, so what are you giving up for Lent? What are you giving up for Lent? And having not come from a Catholic background, I didn't really understand what that was all about. And so they were talking about, I heard guys say, yeah, I'm giving up smoking for Lent. Yeah, I'm going to give up uh, sleeping with my girlfriend for Lent. And uh, then it finally got around, hey, Ramey, what are you going to give up for Lent? And I'll never forget just saying, hey, you know what, guys? I've already given up my entire life to Christ. I got nothing else to give up. And they weren't sure what to do with that. Hopefully it was a good witness, a good testimony at the time. But that's the point, right? Stud's motto, if Jesus Christ is God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. David Livingston Another missionary, you probably heard this quote. He says, people talk of the sacrifice I've made in spending so, much of my, spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called sacrifice, which is simply paid back as a small part of the great debt owing to our God, which we can never repay? I never made a sacrifice, Livingston's dead. Of this we ought not talk when we remember the great sacrifice with which we made with which he made, who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. God gave himself up for us. So it stands to reason we should give ourselves up for him. And when you think about it, it's really no sacrifice at all, is it? What does this look like practically? In our everyday lives, I was wanting to make this as practical as possible, but this may help kind of get the ball rolling in your life. I think we should just start each day talking every morning by consecrating ourselves to Him in prayer, 
and ask him that as we spend time in his word, right, we've got our Bibles, we're ready to have our quiet time, that his spirit would renew our minds as we read his word and help us to better understand how we can be more pleasing to him and less conformed to the world and more conformed to Christ. And so after reading our Bibles, we have another time of prayer where we just surrender all of our plans for the day to him and we yield ourselves to his spirit and ask him to accomplish his will in and through our lives and use us to bring him honor and glory. We're just talking about it. It just starts with a simple morning prayer. Just some time in his word. I don't think it has to be more complicated than that. And I promise you that if, if you do that, if you wake up every morning and that is your heart, that you want to consecrate yourself once again before the Lord, afresh, anew, even as that song that we say, a Christian's daily prayer, and that you spend time in God's word, listen, God will accomplish this in your life. And, 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 and typically you'll be the last one to recognize it. After years and years of waking up and spending time alone with the Lord and his word and his prayer, you'll be less conformed to this world and you'll be transformed into the image of Christ. Let's pray. I'm gonna invite the gentlemen who are gonna serve us communion to come now. And Father, I just ask that as we spend time remembering the sacrifice that Christ made for us, how he gave up everything for us, that we would do an honest self-examination this morning to make sure that there's nothing, that there's no part of us that we're holding back or unwilling to give up for him, for the sake of Christ and the gospel. Father, I pray that you would be exalted now through your son Jesus and the great sacrifice that he made for us and that we would realize that in light of that, whatever we give up for Christ is really no sacrifice at all. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.